It's that was genius. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> well, I think we've uh, just replaced our theme tune, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Hello and welcome to That Was Genius. Sorry about our intro. If it hasn't put you off already, welcome to the podcast. Every week, me, myself, Sam, and my friend Tom talk to each other from different sides of the world about an incredible history story we've discovered over the week. There's a topic to each week, but everything else that happens is a mystery and completely spontaneous, so there's lots of swearing, lots of laughter, and a good time is had by all. If you enjoy this podcast, please do subscribe to us on your favourite podcasting app, and maybe leave us a review. It all makes a huge difference. Anyway, on with the show. I might be sniffing a lot with this podcast. Can you hear me sniffing and snuffling? I can occasionally hear you sniffing and snuffling. Do you want to give your sob story to the audience so that I don't have to edit it all out? I've just been a bit sick this week, audience. I do apologise. I've spent the day looking after my family like a heroic father and husband. But I don't like drawing attention to that. No. But I have, you know, all day, hoovered, cleaned the kitchen, made dinner. But I, I don't like drawing attention to it, Sam. No, we won't talk about that absolute act of selfless heroism again. No. We'll just keep it in the back of our minds. Yeah, I'll just keep it to myself, humbled in the knowledge that I, I've been a good husband and father. Did I mention I've been a good husband and father this today? No, I don't think you did, Tom. That is husbandry. Indeed, not well. I was going to say not to be confused with husbandry, which is the medieval act of breeding horses. <laughs> <laughs> Just to bring it back in a roundabout way to history. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, my, my topic, I'm going to be discussing horses a fair amount today, Sam. Are you? Horses appear in my story. Do you have any animals in your story? The only animal I have in my story is the guy I'm talking about, who I'm going to put uh, it out uh, there, Grade A Bellend. <laughs> grade A Bellend. He was a homo sapien. A homo sapien Grade A Bellend. He was indeed. My chap was just a twit. <laughs> Not, I think there's a difference between a twat and a twit, isn't it? A twat is someone you want to punch. A twit is someone you just want to you just you want sort to of hug. roll your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> you want to, yeah, you want to hug because they're just they're just idiots. Marvelous. Well, I think to set the scene, we should probably tell the audience what this week's topic is, shouldn't we? Hit me because it was a French word, a French term, wasn't it? It was. The topic this week is perfidious Albion, which translates as perfidious England or perfidious Britain. Which subtranslates as British dickheadedness. Traditionally, this phrase <laughs> is used to put down British diplomacy. It's a phrase that means essentially the British can't be trusted. The British are nefarious, the British are bastards. But I think we're going to extend it this week possibly to talk about individuals as well as the British government and the British Empire. Yes, I've kind of bent the rules a bit. I do apologise because I've just gone for the story of an English twit. <laughs> it wasn't really involved in foreign affairs. And I did think that I should have probably done something a bit more foreign affairs related. But he, he did spend some time in Calais. There you go. So, <laughs> And because he's a twit, it's just because he was lost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or as we will find out, uh, worse. <laughs> yeah, so I kind of did bend the rules a little bit. But it, he's still an English twat, twit, twonk, plonker. Excellent. And I think this is nice, Sam, isn't it? Because it shows people that we're willing to take the piss out of anyone. We've done lots of silly French accents. We've generalised Australians are racist. We've done some really bad German cross-dressers. But we're very happy to take the piss out of the English as well. We are indeed. Well, I have to say that the guy that I've chosen today to be my perfidious Englishman is, in fact, a Greek. So I've been oh. the rules slightly as well. <laughs> And it's not, surprisingly, <laughs> Prince Philip. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. Talking of Greek English people notorious for their poor diplomacy. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Right, so shall we flip something? Yes. What I've got today, Tom, is a train ticket. Now I know I've done train tickets before, but this ticket very specifically says on it, not a train ticket. Right. So a train ticket that's not a train ticket. Is it a train ticket in disguise? It's a receipt for train tickets. And, uh, and in the UK, because we're mad efficient, we print our receipts for train tickets on train tickets. So it's a train ticket that says, not a train ticket, not valid for travel. And what's on the other side of said not train ticket? <laughs> on the other side, because it's printed on the back of a standard train ticket, it actually says this ticket is valid via any permitted route for the destination shown. <laughs> oh my God, I get confused. <laughs> <Okay>. Right. <laughs> 
What are you, ticket? Are you a ticket or not a ticket? What are you? Where are we going with this? I don't know. It's not a ticket. But it says it is. But it says it's not. Would you like the side that says it's not a ticket, Tom? Or the side that says it is in fact a ticket? I'm going to go for it is in fact a ticket. It is in fact a ticket. Okay, we're flipping the not a ticket. It's landed. I've dropped it. Radio tension here. It's the side that says it's not a ticket. What did I choose? I can't actually remember. Um... (laughs) (laughs) We're so confused with all the... You're going first. Is it not a ticket? I'm going to go first. Right. The chap I'm going to speak about is John Mad Jack Mitten. Good name, huh? That's a great name. It's a promising start. (laughs) He does sound like a twit. He's already starting to sound like a twit. And this portrayal of John Mad Jack Mitten is only going to get more twitty. As we go on to Excellent. describe his life, I like to tell people what source I've been using for my information. I've been reading English Eccentrics and Eccentricities by John Timms, first published in 1866. That sounds like a great book. <laughs> but it's also a book from the golden age of British eccentricity. He was writing that in 1886. He had no idea what was to come. A great age of eccentricity and also a great age of ignorance of medical conditions. <laughs> so, and, and clearly a time when political correctness was not a term used by anyone. So I'll give you some oh examples of topics. I guess they'd be called chapter headings in this book. So there are about 100 headings for various very short chapters discussing various English eccentrics and sort of eccentric behaviour. Just giving you some examples of these short chapters will just uh, highlight how politically incorrect nowadays this book would be. So let's start with the chapter named The Woman Hating Cavendish. And I'm just going to read out a paragraph here. So this chap Cavendish, he was an excellent mathematician, electrician, astronomer and geologist and as alchemist shot far ahead of his contemporaries. But he was a sort of methodical recluse and an enormous fortune left him by his uncle did little to change his habits. His shyness and aversion to society bordered on disease. A chap that couldn't make any eye contact with anyone and in all his habits he was punctiliously regular. Punt, punt. Punctiliously? Oh, God, that's a word to pronounce. (laughs) Basically, what we're describing here is an autistic. So you read this paragraph, and the woman hating Cavendish is actually just a really intelligent guy who's autistic. (laughs) It doesn't take a medical expert to read between the lines to realise that's what's being described. He's an English eccentric, Tom. Point and laugh at the autistic child. So it's not not the most savoury topic, I don't think, looking back at it. There's another chapter called Fat Folks, Lambert and Bright. <laughs> and, uh, again, hmm, you know, taking the piss out of people because they're fat. A yeah, bit of an old school way of making humour. Incidentally, this chap Lambert was 52 stone at his death. That's 330 kilos. Bloody hell. Yeah, 330 kilos. He was able to kick to a height of seven feet standing on one leg. So he's still quite agile for a big bloke. I like that. Commenting on his dancing prowess. <laughs> yeah. John Timms does highlight the fact that he wasn't the most agile, but he was surprisingly agile for his size. He was an excellent swimmer who could swim with two men on his back. Wow. Very buoyant. And he had a special carriage made for him to travel to London. And John Timms goes on to talk about a few other fat people, as he calls them. I can't help but feel, Sam, if you were that big... I've just Googled, Tom, out of interest. I've Googled the heaviest man in the world, and he's not far off it. No. Heaviest man in the world, John Brower Minoch, or Minoch, 442 kilograms in 1976. Cool, blimey. In the modern era, you can get fat through just eating too much, can't you? I get the impression if you were that big... In the early 19th century, there's got to be an element of a medical condition, surely. Yeah, yes. And John Timms even refers to the fact that this Lambert chap didn't eat a huge amount. He he wasn't a big eater. So, yeah, I don't know. Neither of us are medical. But again, I get the impression that John Timms is sort of pointing the finger and making people read in awe about someone who probably had a disability. What follows on from this chapter about the fat folks Lambert at Bright is Epitaphs on Fat Folks. That's the name of the next chapter. And I'll read one, Sam. (laughs) Therefore, good people, here tis seen, you plainly may see here, that fat men sooner die than lean. Witness, fat Johnny Holder. (laughs) 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 So witness, fat Johnny Holder doesn't even rhyme uh, with the rest (laughs) of that. But anyway, so that's the moral of the story, Sam. Fat people die sooner than lean people. There you go. And then there's also another chapter which is called Count Borowolaski, the Polish Dwarf. 
So we're now having a good rubber neck at someone who's got a disability, which means they're short. Interestingly, I've heard of him. Have you? I can't think from where, from whence, but the name rings a bell. Not the way you pronounced it, but the name rings a bell. (laughs) I imagine he toured courts in Europe as as a sort of unique individual, I suppose. Yes. Anyway, this chap, John Mad Jack Mitten, having read about him, I don't think this guy's got any serious mental illnesses. He comes across as just an upper class twit, to be honest. Let's set the scene here. So the chapter is called The Spendthrift Squire of Halston. That's John Mitten. Here's a quote. In the Great Civil War, Mitten of Halston was one of the few Shropshire gentlemen who joined the parliamentary standard. From this gallant and upright parliamentarian, the fifth in descent was John Mitten, the eccentric, wasteful, dissipated, open-hearted, open-handed squire of Halston, in whose day and by whose wanton extravagance and folly, a time-honoured family and a noble estate, the inheritance of 500 years was recklessly destroyed. There you go. That sums him up beautifully. So basically, partying ponce. He's a partying ponce who spent an absolute fortune, and we're talking an absolute fortune here. So he was born in 1796. His father died when he was 18 months old. And so he had to wait 20 years or so until he was able to take his inheritance. And so the value of his inheritance was accumulating massively in these 20 years. His estate was worth about £10,000 per year at the time, which is just under a million pounds in modern money a year. Very nice. As a child, he was a scapegrace, which is a word I learnt during this week. Scapegrace. Great name. Basically a little toe rag. (laughs) He was expelled from Westminster and Harrow schools. And for those of you who aren't from the UK, they're two of the most prestigious private schools in the country. Probably in the world, realistically. Yeah, probably. He was home-tutored, but he was a bit of a turd. (laughs) Actually, he once put a horse in one of his tutor's rooms, and horses will come back in this story. There's a number of horses being asked to do rather strange things in the life of John Mitten. How Caligulan. (laughs) No, not in that sense, (laughs) but not far off. He managed to get places at two universities, but did nothing there. So at the age of 19, he buggers off to France. This is just after the Napoleonic War, I think, and joined the 9th Hussars. But he never saw any fighting and just gambled. And by all accounts, gambled very badly and lost a lot of money gambling. In 1818, he marries the daughter of... Now, get this name, Sam. This is a wonderful English aristocrat's name. Sir Thomas Tewitt Jones of Stanley Hall. That's a very Jane Austen name, isn't it? Sir Thomas Tyrewitt but I like to pronounce it Tyrwit. Is it Tyrwit or is it Tyrwit? It doesn't matter. It's T-Y-R-R-W-H-I-T-T. Yeah, I think that's pronounced Tyrwit, but it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm not going to be pedantic. <laughs> I prefer Tyrwit. <laughs> Just like you'd say Tyrwit. So that's how I prefer to say it. Unfortunately, she died at 1820. So there's, there's a sad streak in this story. But again, this is the early 19th century I don't think it's uncommon for for your father to die when you're quite young and to have people die in childbirth etc so she dies after two years of marriage here's a quote after his wife's decease the wayward extravagance which marked the career of John Mitten had probably no parallel so it all kind of goes a bit downhill from here Uh, listen here we go sound effects that's me turning over the page of my notes very nice (laughs) I compliment my sound effects (laughs) <laughs> he marries again quite quickly but ends up single again because she just, she runs off when she finds out he's such a prat <laughs> so he decides to go into politics he becomes the MP for Shrewsbury and he does this by giving all his constituents £10 to vote for him <laughs> there's quite a lot of money at the time I mean obviously very corrupt but <laughs> yeah a simple but effective way to get into parliament but he found it very boring in parliament and so after 30 minutes he decided he wasn't going to be a politician so all those £10 notes he was given out were wasted <laughs> after literally 30 minutes 30 minutes we are told 30 minutes he got bored he was sitting in parliament it was boring and <laughs> I'm going to go into more detail shortly about how Mitten blew his money I'm deliberately just giving you an overview of his life before I go into some specifics about what he was up to. But you can see why he would find this boring when I go on to what he was up to. So it looks as if around this point, Mitten starts to sell off land to pay debts. An advisor tells him that he can save his Shrewsbury estate if he just lives off £6,000 a year, a mere 
a mere six thousand pounds a year. So six hundred thousand odd pounds. Oh, how much would that have been? Six thousand uh, pounds per year. Oh, I, di- I didn't work that one out. Yeah, ten th- if ten thousand's a million, then six thousand is six hundred. There you go. Yes, good, good calculations. Sam. well done. Boom. Um, That's right. Very sharp. Very sharp. <laughs> I know my ten times table. <laughs> one times ten is ten. Two times ten is twenty. To escape his debtors, he flees to Calais. And what have we got here? We've got a little quote from his biographer. So this is actually the biographer. I couldn't get a hold of his biography, which is written by a chap called Nimrod. Ironically, Nimrod being another word for a stupid person. Absolutely. What do you call it when someone has a pen name? I guess it's called a pen name, isn't it? Anyway, this chap's real name wasn't Nimrod, but he wrote under the under the name Nimrod. His real name was Fuckwit. <laughs> <laughs> his real name was Numnut. <laughs> <laughs> dumbass. Oh, I'll never be taken seriously as an author with this name. I shall choose something classy. So Clarence <laughs> Cockwomble. <laughs> Bertie Belland. That's what I shall be called. <laughs> Bertie Belland. Lord Thomas Turwatt. <laughs> That's what I'll be called. That's, isn't that Danny Dyer's aristocratic name? <laughs> Turwatt. That's when Danny Dyer writes children's books. It's Sir Thomas Twat. <laughs> Danny Dyer is Prime Minister, twat the younger. And twat his dad as well. <laughs> twat, twat everyone. Anyone comes near me with bad attitudes gets twatted. <laughs> what did, here's a quote from the biographer. But what did I see before me? The active, vigorous, well-shapen John Mitten whom I had left some years back in Shropshire? Oh no, compared with him, twas the reed shaken by the wind. There stood before me a round-shouldered, decrepit, tottering old young man if I may be allowed such a term, and so bloated by drink. But there was a worse sight than this. There was a mind as well as a body in ruins. The one had partaken of the injury done to the other, and it was at once apparent that the whole was a wreck. In fact, he was a melancholy spectacle of a fallen man. He's basically in prison here in Calais. So to escape his debtors, he goes to Calais. He does get it put in prison. He then gets transferred across to London, and he dies in a prison at the age of 38. Jesus sad into the story isn't it i know well that's why i thought i'd quickly get the sad bits over and done with then we can take the piss out of what he was up to oh good so we're going back a bit good yeah 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 don't worry don't worry don't worry this is just a quick overview now the fun bit sam in the last 15 years of his life he squandered the equivalent of 40 million pounds in modern money nice 40 million pounds he squandered how did he squander that money well i'm glad you asked i'm hoping we've got a poem have we got a poem no no <laughs> He bought prostitutes and leather boots. <laughs> no? I was hoping for great things. <laughs> prostitutes and leather boots. Oh, brilliant. And, that was and diamond rings and other things. And, I'm going a bit Pirates of Penzance now. Give me 20 minutes to half an hour and I will zing back with a song for you. <laughs> Why did you decide to ad-lib a really fast song? Do, do a slow one. It gives you more time to oh, think up the next verse. this shit I'm buying. <laughs> Prostitutes and leather boots. Diamond rings. Silken strings. Anyway, I'm just going to throw some things at you here, Sam. These are some of the things that Mitten got up to. He would go duck shooting quite often. And when he got excited on horseback, when he was running after these... Well, he wasn't running. He was riding after these clothes... He would often just take his clothes off, Sam. <laughs> you did say he was running after the clothes. No, <laughs> that's a bit weird, isn't it? That's a bit like an LSD <laughs> trip. A man on horseback chasing after some clothes. Yeah. While it did involve him getting naked, it could well be an LSD trip. We've all been out, air quotes, duck hunting, and come back three days later thinking we've seen the black dog. <laughs> Have we? I haven't. When did you do this? Um, I'm, Never. <laughs> <laughs> So Mitten would often go duck shooting and he often got so excited when he was on the hunt that he would take off all his clothes and just chase after them in the nude. So he'd be on horseback, riding along, knackers swinging left and right, happy as Larry, even in really cold weather. So he would do that in all sorts of weather. He would just go naked, naked duck hunting. Wonderful. Although not the most expensive hobby. No, no, that one isn't. Don't you worry. We'll get to the extravagant money spending idiocies shortly carry on with his idiocy his normal idiocy he once invited a doctor and a clergyman around and, and this isn't a bad i know this sounds like it's a joke <laughs> it does sound very much like they're about to walk into a pub <laughs> a doctor a clergyman and an irishman walk into a bar he once invited a doctor and a clergyman around and in the evening when they left by carriage 
he decides, you know what would be really funny? I'm going to dress up as a highwayman. I'm going to ride out and I'm going to pretend to hold them hostage. So he runs after the carriage in the dark, stops the carriage. Completely naked. (laughs) I'm not sure if he was completely naked on this occasion. It did say he dresses up as a highwayman. Unless highwaymen were notoriously naked. They were. They were. <laughs> the Naked Highwayman is a... <laughs> it's a strip show. It's, it's a review show. <laughs> the, the company tours Wigan. <laughs> oh, dear. Yes. We've all got to pay our bills, Sam. I'm not judging you. Yeah. <laughs> Sam, the Naked Highwayman. I was going to say, it sounded like a Gilbert and Sullivan musical, but... <laughs> <laughs> the Naked Highwayman. <laughs> Sing us one of their numbers. No, I can't because it's another fast-paced song, isn't it? This is why I've got them in my head. I am the very model of a modern naked highwayman. <laughs> I've got a pistol and a penis <laughs> and an anus. And you've, a, you've, take got, note. you've got a whole day ahead of you. Plan one, work it out, sing it online, and then just edit it in, and nobody will know yep. the difference. <laughs> I can't think of a more productive way to spend a day. And so he, he then fires a blank shot at the clergyman and the doctor and says, stand or deliver, thinking it is hilarious. I'm not convinced the doctor and the clergyman found it funny. I think that's pretty good. Do you think it's good? As a jape to rob your friends. Yeah. It's hilarious. Yeah, pretend they're going to be shot. And he actually did shoot at them with a blank cartridge. So just pretend you're going to shoot someone. Hilarious. <laughs> hilarious. So not only was he involved in naked highwayman jests, on another occasion, he tries to jump a toll gate as a bet with a horse and a carriage. <laughs> there are pictures of this online. They're not, you know, obviously contemporary pictures. They're artistic interpretations. They're live engravings, live woodcuts yeah, from yeah. the scene. <laughs> yeah. And there, there doesn't even seem to be a ramp involved. I think John Mitten was assuming that when the horse attempted to jump, the carriage would somehow jump over as well. Physics, bitches. Yeah, unsurprisingly, this fails. So, yeah, that ends in a few bruises. What's this? Oh, here we go. He once entered his drawing room to entertain some guests in full hunting gear, riding a bear. (laughs) The bear actually bites him in the calf when John Mitten tries to sort of use his stirrups to speed him up like he were a horse. And later on in the evening, the bear attacks one of his servants. So, fun had by all. He's starting to sound very much like one of these Arab princes from Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Very much that. Just a spoiled brat. What do they call it? In Australia, they call them trust children, I think. Trust fund kids, yeah. Trust fund kids, yeah. He's just a spoiled brat, wasting money doing whatever the fuck he likes. And you you see what I'm saying here? He doesn't sound like he's actually got a disability. He just sounds like he's a knob. (laughs) There's nothing in this that makes me suggest he's anything other than an irresponsible knob. On another occasion, a friend wakes up from a drinking session with two bulldogs and a bear staring at him in his bedroom. (laughs) Oh, We've all woken up after a night out with that <laughs> Oh, oh dear. Regrettable life decision. <laughs> <laughs> God almighty. On one of the few occasions when he actually won any money gambling, because he was a big gambler, he was journeying home counting his winnings with a carriage window open and all the money blows out into the air. So that's a good example of him not really giving a monkeys. <laughs> a good carriage to follow around if you're a beggar. Absolutely. Talking of beggars, he was once out walking around his estate and he spots a beggar. And he thinks, oh, there's another funny joke. So he swaps clothes with him and returns to his house dressed as a beggar and then gets in a fight with some of his servants when they try and remove him <laughs> from the property. <laughs> <laughs> so this guy clearly has nothing better to do with his time than fuck around he's just a chronic fuck arounder uh, he once fought for 20 rounds with a local miner in a bare knuckle fight because the miner had slightly disturbed a hunt he was on by all accounts the fight ended when the miner just was too exhausted to carry on I suspect that the miner was probably kicking the shit out of John Mitten, but he was too fucking stupid to know when to give up. (laughs) (laughs) Just taking an absolute hiding, but he was like, come on, you bloody miner, bring it on. I ain't finished yet. I doubt that, Tom. You know miners. They're pretty fluffy people. (laughs) Yeah, notoriously snowflakey. Weakened, yes, absolutely. Flimsy. How many people have actually been down a mine? You know, they go down the entrance to the mine and you think... They're going for a long day's work in horrible, dark conditions. No, there's just a health spa down there. Absolutely. Lots of Reiki. Here's another one. One evening he was beset by hiccups. I like that word, beset. 
And so he set a light to his cotton shirt to frighten the hiccups away. Perfectly logical. <laughs> he quickly goes up in a blaze and has to be put out by two people who just happen to be walking past his hotel room, I think, and happen to hear his <laughs> cries. He's dancing around in a bloody cotton shirt that's fully alight. By all accounts, it worked, though. So, hey, let's not be too critical. Top tip. <laughs> From Tom and Sam's podcast, that was genius. Hashtag life hacks. <laughs> Set like your shirt, get rid of hiccups. Send us your videos of you getting rid of your hiccups by setting light to your shirt, please. An edit by Sam later on. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't even an edit by me later on. I said that at the time. The magic of audio. <laughs> For a bet, he rode his horse into the Bedford Hotel in Limington Spa, up the grand staircase, and then he jumped it over diners and out of a window. <laughs> For a bet. With a carriage? (laughs) He once killed a horse. The best anecdotes start with deaths of horses, don't they? Uh, (laughs) He once killed a horse by giving it a whole bottle of port. (laughs) Come on, horses are pretty big. I can drink a bottle of port if someone puts it in front of me and leaves for a while. Um, (laughs) A bottle of port is not going to floor a horse. Sammy Big Port. (laughs) I'm not a drinker, Sam, I don't know. But supposedly, he kills a horse by giving it lots of port. He, he does drink a lot of port. Yeah, he's, he's a big port drinker, this John Mitten. His favourite horse was actually allowed to roam freely around Houston Hall, so he would often snuggle up with it in front of the fire. <laughs> now, you've worked with horses, Sam. Would you want I to have. have a horse in your house? I wouldn't. However, there are a few instances in the UK and I think elsewhere of people who have guide or service horses people who for usually religious reasons or sometimes allergies can't have a dog so they have a shetland pony that can do most of the things a guide dog does and they do live in the house well i never that is an incredibly interesting fact yeah there you go i heard another interesting fact today that i thought was incredibly interesting go on hit me with it i was training someone from norway and she was telling me that her grandfather once made her a boat a small boat to play with in norway Rather than getting wood and bending it using hot water or or heat, what he would do is he would go down to the banks of fjords or rivers or or wherever and find trees that had grown naturally in a bend. And that's how he would get wood that would bend nicely into the shape of a boat. And I thought that was fantastically interesting. (laughs) Maybe something I found more interesting than other people. Horses. (laughs) He had 2,000 dogs. And his favourite was fed on steak and champagne. <laughs> 2,000 dogs. Absolutely, 2,000 dogs. And he fed his favourites on steak and champagne. They are going to have appalling wind. <laughs> Some of his dogs he actually bred for fighting. He was often seen by visitors fighting the dogs himself. <laughs> <laughs> that was a really good snort, Sam. Almost nothing angers me more than dog fighting on quite a dog person. And that immediately made me lose what very little respect I had for this guy. But then if he's fighting them himself, that's turned back to pity. I'm not entirely sure he wasn't mentally ill. There are actually pictures that are in the biography by this Nimrod chap that show him just biting dogs. <laughs> just like, gnawing a fighting dog. So there you have it. There were some examples of mad Jack Mitten and what he got up to. And you can see now how he squandered so much money by just being a complete lunatic. <laughs> He does just sound like a very bored man who doesn't have any direction in his life. And I know that makes me sound incredibly old. Yes, well, yeah, he did lose his father at the age of two. Maybe he just required a good father figure in his life. Maybe. He could have also just been a cunt. (laughs) Hard to say, isn't it? Hard to say. Hard to say. I'm not surprised his second wife left him. No, it seems like a complete nutcase. Before he goes to Calais, which is where he first ends up in prison in France, he meets an attractive young lady on one of London's bridges, and I think he agrees to pay her £500 a day or something to stay with him. Jesus. Seems like he's pretty lonely as well. He was kind of like a 19th century Michael Jackson, wasn't he? I'm not sure Michael Jackson ever fought a bear. Did he fight a bear? No, he never fought a bear in any of his music videos. No, I don't think so. I could say that fairly confidently. Absolutely fascinating, Tom. What a strange and bizarre man. Very little to do with Perfidious Albion, but I'm glad you found him. (laughs) (laughs) I did think, as I was researching this, I did think I'd probably misheard the topic. I thought it was English twits, but I did have an inkling that it was actually supposed to be bad English diplomacy. My apologies. (laughs) That's all right. I'm glad you had the confidence in yourself to plough on. 
and think, do you know what, I'm not entirely sure this is the topic, but I want to talk about this guy anyway. But, th- but this guy's completely bonkers. It was worth talking about. Absolutely. And I'm sure at some point in his life, in his military career in France, he ripped off a Frenchman. Oh, by all accounts, I don't think he did. I think he was constantly or losing. Or got ripped off by the Frenchman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He doesn't come across as a particularly successful individual when he was trying to gamble or rip people off. <laughs> or indeed in life. No, despite having all the cards dealt in his favour. Oh, well, there you go. Mad Jack Mitten. Rhymes with kitten. Rhymes with kitten. Damn, should have stuck that in the song. (laughs) Well, Tom, I'm going to talk about someone who wasn't a twit, but was definitely, definitely a twat. And that man is, like my intro, slick, yeah? Smooth. (laughs) Very slick. The guy that I'm going to talk about today is Basil Zaharoff, who was known to his friends as ZZ. I want to give an honourable mention, actually, Tom, before I start this, to a guy called William Melville, who was Queen Victoria's spymaster and was so loyal to her that he nearly blew her up (laughs) in a plot to arrest Irish Fenian dissidents. Uh, But I'm not going to talk about it too much because I want to save him for another podcast, I think. But he is the kind of the inspiration for M in James Bond. Ah. Absolute psychopath of a man who was the enemy of Irish Republicans at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. An incredibly interesting guy. But I'm not going to talk about him today. He's just my honourable mention. I'm going to talk about Basil Zaharoff. I'm going to pronounce this a myriad of different ways. One of them will be right. Or ZZ. Go with ZZ. Difficult to get wrong. So ZZ was a Greek salesman working for Britain's Vickers Arms Company. Vickers Arms? Yeah, so Vickers. You think of the Vickers machine gun and Vickers tanks and things from World War One and World War Two. Huge, huge arms company. Oh. Big makers of ships and cannons and all of this. I was thinking of clergymen with no arms. Someone's got to supply them. I see where, <laughs> yes. I, I, yes. I can see how that confusion would legitimately arise. A good open span. That's what you want with a, with a Vickers arms, isn't it? Absolutely. Come hither arms to welcome in the flock. Yes, Yep. No, I was talking about the other Vickers Arms Company, the one that made guns and other things that definitely were not holy. And ZZ was the salesman and a board member for Vickers Arms Company. And essentially, he single-handedly ramped up World War One, started some of the World War One conflicts and the post-World War One conflicts single-handedly and became an absolutely key figure in international politics, both for his own benefit for his employer's benefit, and for Britain and France as well. So a guy who really had fingers in many, many pies, incredibly powerful industrialist, and con man, and arsehole. Excellent. He was born into, not not poverty, but kind of lower middle class, in the town of Mugla in southwestern Turkey in 1849. His dad was Greek and was a merchant. And ZZ very quickly grew up into a young man of very, very few morals. <laughs> so... His first job was as a brothel hawker touting girls in the street. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, that's pretty good, isn't it? Oh, it gets worse, Tom. So his second job was as an official arsonist for the Constantinople Fire Brigade. (laughs) I'm glad you didn't take Constantinople Fire Brigade. I'm cold on. Yep. I thought you were going to go as an arsonist for the brothel. And I I was starting to worry whether arsonist had two meanings. (laughs) No, no. It's getting hot in here, so take off all your clothes. <laughs> he was hired by the fire brigade to start fires. Yes, so the Constantinople fire brigade was incredibly and, and quite famously corrupt. And they had a number of arsonists on the payroll whose job it was to go into stately homes, museums, government buildings and start fires so that the fire brigade would then charge an extortionate amount to these wealthy citizens of Constantinople to go and put the fire out and save the family silverware, or more often, steal the family silverware. God, we've been starting fire. I can't remember. <laughs> we did start the fire. What's the rest of the words of that song? That's all I can remember from that song. I don't know. You know the song, though, don't you? I know the song. Since the world was turning, I've been yearning no, no, no. to start a big fire. Yes, what a musical episode this is. <laughs> we'll have to release the live soundtrack as bonus content. So, anyway, back to ZZ. As he grew older, he moved between Britain, where he was a trader in Greek and Turkish goods, which he quite often stole from himself for insurance purposes. And he also moved around in the US, where he invested quite heavily in railroads. And he married local women in both countries simultaneously, a builder's daughter in Britain, and posing as variously a count or a prince in the US, a New York heiress. And was pursued and chased internationally for bigamy, which I think he got away with on the basis that he was using two different names. Oh, that's all right then. 
<laughs> that makes it fine, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that okay. makes it fine. So having married in Britain, he is now a British citizen. He has a British passport and therefore readily qualifies for a life in pursuit of perfidious Albion, British dickheadedness. So that's how I managed to shoehorn a Greek into this week's topic. So it was no surprise that a man of such high moral fibre very quickly got involved in arms dealing and equally quickly got a reputation for being very, very good at it by having very, very few morals. And his first job was for a Swedish arms company, which is called Nordfelt, where he did two particularly bastardic things. Nordfelt had two very bad inventions. The first was a frankly ridiculous ten-barreled machine gun type thing, which went head-to-head with the American Herman Maxim's machine gun in 1886 to 1889. Now, the Maxim machine gun, very, very famous. It's the first proper machine gun, and it's really the one that was involved in World War I, causing countless millions of casualties. Horrible weapon, but very, very successful and a very, very good design if you're into that kind of thing. So the Maxim gun was... Excellent. It was light, it was simple, it was cheap. But it was also sabotaged by <laughs> by ZZ's agents. And it broke in trials repeatedly. And simultaneously, he launched a PR campaign amongst European militaries to basically discredit this weapon as interesting looking, but badly made, expensive, too difficult to use. Herman Maxim is the only man who can possibly use this thing. The Maxim gun was completely discredited. Barely sold at all in Europe. At which point Nordfeld bought him out and ZZ bought him out. And a couple of years after that, the Vickers Arms Company bought out that company, at which point all of these supposed problems with the gun disappeared overnight. And it turns out that suddenly, with absolutely no changes whatsoever, this is a fantastic gun that can be sold in vast quantities to militaries all over the world at incredible profit. Oh, he sounds like one of those shady characters you go to if you want to get a dirty job done, doesn't he? Very, very, very much. Yeah, this is exactly this guy's bag. Yeah. Um, the second bad invention that Nordfeld had was one of the world's first torpedo-firing submarines. So submarines had kind of existed as toys and playthings before. There'd been some very unsuccessful military experiments with putting giant drill bits on the front of them to drill holes in ships and that kind of thing. <laughs> They're really? That's a brilliant idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not a brilliant idea, it's a shit idea. Yes, but it's a fun idea. So they created one of the world's first steam-powered torpedo-firing submarines developed in around 1886, and it was... Steam-powered? Yes, and unsurprisingly, putting a giant steam boiler in a can underwater, it was an absolute death trap. Yeah, God, and steam engines produce smoke, don't they? Yes, they do, yes, among many other things. Yes, yeah, smoke and steam and, and heat. And... Where does that go? Well, it goes into the crew, Tom. It was so hot and dirty inside. <laughs> more. Breathe more, you bastards! <laughs> the, the crew would faint within minutes. They did have a small chimney out the top, so it wasn't very stealthy because there'd be a huge cloud of smoke coming out of the water so you knew where the submarine was. <laughs> yeah. At the time, very little you could do about it. But anyway, it couldn't steer properly and it had a nasty habit of flipping upside down and sinking whenever it fired its torpedoes. So really a pretty bad design. <sighs> I'm so... done. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm spent. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh. <laughs> oh, was that good for you, dear? <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> More or less. The naval equivalent of... So anyway, what did ZZ do about this wonder weapon of absolute death and destruction to the people who happened to be crewing it. Well, he told the Greeks that the Ottomans had bought one, so that they needed to buy one. And he then told the Ottomans that the Greeks had bought two, so that they needed two. Classic. So what he did was he played the two powers off against each other. He then very cleverly went to the Russians and told them that there was a new naval arms race happening in the Black Sea, and that Greece and Turkey were going at it with these new wonder weapons, and that Russia should really get on board with this or risk losing out. So the Russians bought two as well. At the same time, there was a Spanish engineer called Isaac Peral who had developed, unsurprisingly, a working submarine, mm. which was electric-powered and so didn't have all the fumes and could steer and didn't flip over and kill everyone on board whenever it fired its gun and was generally, you know, a much more successful development of the idea. Now, ZZ immediately intercepted the design from the Spanish naval headquarters where he had spies and when Peral refused to sell him the design, he set about sabotaging both the submarine and Peral, the designer, personally. Oh, what a bastard. Yeah, so four separate sabotages were uncovered and overcome by Peral because 
he knew from the Maxim debacle what ZZ was like to an extent. And so instead, Basil ZZ bought a Spanish arms company and newspaper, started shagging around the local heiresses to get their ears amongst the Spanish political elite, and used his position of power and the fact that he now had a rival arms company to launch a huge PR campaign against Peral and the submarine, forcing the Spanish government to completely drop the programme. Just to seal the dickish move, his arms company, which he bought in Spain, then cut every corner it possibly could and sold faulty, useless weapons to the Spanish government before lobbying for vicars to be given sole rights to build the entire Spanish navy. Why not just use mechanics, Sam? Why choose clergymen? Bunkers. <sighs> well, yes, never trust a vicar to build a navy. You'd be able to fit an awful lot of animals on board, two of each, but, but little more than that. Yep. Very good in a flood. Very bad in a major international conflict zone. Too peaceful. Indeed. Apart from all the fire and brimstone stuff. So, now a major salesman within the arms company known as Vickers Not Vickers. Oh, you did explain that to me earlier. <laughs> Sorry. Basil had free reign to continue his tactic of scaring both sides of conflict into buying weapons from him by drumming up conspiracy theories and resentment. And he bought banks all around Europe in order to finance these deals. So he bought... Where is he getting his money from? The money he'd scammed investing in railroads in America and selling dodgy arms in Spain and elsewhere. He scammed his way up from brothels all the way up to bloody buying banks. Well, and tacitly, he was being given money by the British government to stir, yeah, yeah, <laughs> to stir yeah, up trouble yeah. in Europe. <laughs> so he was able to buy several banks which he used to finance loans to governments in developing countries and major powers in Europe as well. So he could give them very good deals, finance on the guns that they were buying. And he also bought newspapers in every country as well throughout Europe to launch PR campaigns. And in fact, in the run-up to World War One, when the big arms race was taking place between Germany and the Central Powers and the Allied Powers, Britain and France, he had press releases printed in both Germany and France saying that the weapons the other possessed were far superior and so they needed to make and buy more weapons themselves. So France needed to buy more French weapons and Germany needed to buy more German weapons because the other had weapons which were far more powerful. Now, of course, the weapons on both sides were identical. They were absolutely the same, both being made by the Vickers Arms Companies and their local subsidiaries, uh. being made in factories which were largely owned by ZZ. And, of course, all of this time, he was also feeding back information from his different contracts in the Central Powers to the governments in Britain and France. So Britain and France knew exactly which guns the Germans were buying and how many. So he was acting not only as a war provocateur and profiteer, but also running a huge network of spies and agents extending through the military headquarters of almost every major power in the world. He got away with it by buying himself prestige and power and the love of the public by building retirement homes for soldiers and sailors and offering war weirdo packages to politicians in Britain and France, often in the form of an envelope of cash left on the desk and slipped quietly into the drawer of some politician. Yeah. He really rose, this guy, considering he started off as a professional arsonist and brothel merchant. He rose through the ranks, this guy. So it got to the stage where he was so trusted that he was ferrying secret messages between King George V, who absolutely hated him but did trust him, Prime Minister Lloyd George, and Clemenceau, the French Prime Minister. It's rumoured that his agents knew so much about the Central Powers plans in World War I that he was actually personally consulted before any major Allied World War I attack. That is just how deep in the conspiracy theories and in the kind of the the secret world under government, if you want to believe such a thing existed, this guy was it. Mm. <laughs> he really, really was. You've got the Sherlock Holmes film with Robert Downey Jr. a few years ago. I think it was the sequel where they break into this German arms factory and they've got all of these huge guns piled up there. It's all part of a giant conspiracy to set off a world war. That was what this guy was doing. Yeah, Absolutely what this guy was doing in the, in the run-up to and during World War I. And probably his most audacious act of uh, perfidious Britishness was to single-handedly turn Greece to the Allied side in World War I and against the Ottomans and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was no mean feat given that the king of Greece, King Constantine, was the brother-in-law of Kaiser Wilhelm. And Greece geographically, of course, slap bang in the middle between the Ottoman Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So absolutely no reason whatsoever that Greece would ever commit the suicidal act of siding with the Allies. Except, of course, ZZ bought up a load of Greek newspapers and launched a disinformation campaign against the Greek government, which caused it to collapse, and a new Western-friendly allied government was brought in. Ooh. And he actually managed to completely flip the Greek government 
in, I think it was 1917. Incredible ballsiness on this guy. He even tried to buy the Ottomans out of World War I completely, travelling to Switzerland with £10 million in cash on behalf of Lloyd George, but was intercepted at the uh, Swiss border and refused entry. In fact, he was strip-searched. The Swiss were absolutely furious at what he'd been up to and knew what he was doing, so they publicly humiliated the guy by strip-searching him and leaving him out in the freezing cold for, I think, two hours. Bloody good show. Yeah. ZZ Zaharoff continued to act as Britain's agent in Greece following World War I. He single-handedly encouraged slash set about the 1919-1922 Greco-Turkish War, or Greco-Ottoman War, in which Greece, which had been promised lands in Turkey by the British government invaded and was roundly dicked on by <laughs> by the Turkish. But he more or less started that war. He was the go-between who handed over cash bribes and funded this, that and the other and funded various societies and friends with higher powers in the military. His connections were absolutely unbelievable. He was eventually made a Knight of the Grand Cross in the UK for his clandestine services in World War One. after writing to the British government a letter in which he... And this for some reason, this really makes me... It's like fingers down blackboard when he writes this, Tom. I hate what he writes. But he demands chocolate for ZZ, which just sounds like the most horrible, disgusting pimp thing. Chocolate for ZZ, it does, doesn't it? Chocolate for ZZ, which was his way of demanding a peerage or demanding a, a oh, knighthood. That sounds horrible. That sounds like a big, fat, wealthy man laying in bed saying, chocolate for ZZ. ZZ needs sugar, yeah. yeah. Three prostitutes walking in that have been trafficked from Eastern Europe. Sounds horrible, doesn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. Completely makes my skin crawl. Yeah. I mean, everything about this guy makes my skin crawl. The bigamist womaniser sleeps his way into the corridors of power, turning countries against each other. He's probably responsible for millions of deaths, <laughs> indirectly, this guy. What a turd. What a turd. So he was given this knighthood, which he shouldn't have been given because he was a French citizen at the same time. He also had French citizenship. So he shouldn't have been given this knighthood, but he, he was. And he styled himself Sir Basil for the rest of his life. He had other dealings. He ended up running the Monte Carlo Casino in return for favourable terms for the Monte Carlo government in the Treaty of Versailles. Later in his life, invested in oil and aviation and donated huge amounts of money to various universities and military research centres and, and this, that and the other. He amassed an estimated fortune of well over a billion pounds in his life. And bear in mind, this was you know 120 years ago. Huge, huge, huge amounts of money. By the time he died, he only had a million to give away in his will. And it's not sure whether he squirrelled the cash away somewhere, whether he hid it, whether he just gave it all away. But he died comparatively poor but still very wealthy hugely wealthy in his lifetime though and he eventually died in 1936 at the age of 87 and that is the story of ZZ or Basil Zaharoff or Lord Basil what an absolute grey day bellend yeah. and your lack of interruptions during this story Tom make me think that you're just as in awe of how much of a shit he is as I am no, he just sounds like an absolute turd and there are a lot of conspiracy theorists discussing this so there is unsurprisingly a lot of conspiracy theory surrounding him he wrote a diary for 56 years of his life and the manuscript was stolen by one of his servants and when it was recovered by the police he immediately burnt it so it was never released so most of the stories from his life have been lost he was an avid storyteller himself he loved to make things up and there's an awful lot of other stories about what he got up to and what he did most of which is absolute nonsense he made it up himself for a laugh so what survived and what I've talked about today is the stuff that's been fact-checked and has actually happened and there's documentary evidence and letters between government officials that corroborate all of what's been said today. But obviously there's vast tracts of conspiracy theories surrounding him. A lot of stuff about you know these global conspiracy theories and the cabal and all of these anti-Semitic theories about industrial barons yeah 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 yeah. a lot of that floating around Rothschild stuff yeah but yeah an awful lot of conspiracy theories unsurprisingly surrounding a guy who probably did more than anyone else to start world war one yeah <laughs> and made an enormous amount of cash off it in the process which in itself is just a bit unpleasant isn't it even if he wasn't involved in starting the war just making money out of war is fairly unsavoury, isn't it? Like that, that on its own is enough to raise heckles and raise eyebrows. Yeah. But the fact that he was not only selling arms, he was selling arms to both parties whilst running the newspapers that were drumming up the hatred towards the other parties. Yeah. Like we talk about fake news today and propaganda. I mean, he was a master of it 120, well, 100 years ago. Yeah. Like he was absolutely the king of doing this and all the time acting as an agent for British arms manufacturers and the British government. 
than the French. There you go. Appalling. Absolutely. What an appalling person. But it's okay because he died rich and happy <laughs> with a knighthood. Yeah. So there we go, Perfidious Albion. Well, I'm, I'm glad neither of us really got it right because he was actually Greek, wasn't he, Sam? He was, but he was a British citizen. He was a British citizen who was really Greek. <laughs> Working on behalf of the British government. So my chap was British, but he just didn't do any diplomacy or foreign affairs stuff. <laughs> In fact, quite the opposite yeah, of. He was too, yeah, he was too busy fucking around. <laughs> riding horses through hotels. Yep, absolutely, and riding bears through the guest room. Sounds a bit like Vladimir Putin, doesn't he? <laughs> I think combine the two and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, we've cumulatively created Putin by accident. Well, that's what, when you were describing all the manipulation of the media... It's obviously tactics that are still being used by major powers. It's always worked. Absolutely, and I'm, always I'm sure the Western powers do a little bit of it themselves as well. Oh, yeah, undoubtedly. There we go. What a pair of cunts. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the name of the episode. So, Tom, have you got any thoughts on what we could do next week? Cheats. You want to do cheats? I want to... Okay. The theme can be cheats. Okay, kind of a follow-on from Historic Con Men we did a few weeks ago, but... Sort of. I'm going to go down a slightly more sporty route if we go for cheating. Well, I'm happy with cheating. I think, unsurprisingly, possibly to our regular audience, we'll not be doing a sporting one if I can help oh, it. Oh, no, but it, you could, there, there are many examples of cheating in horse racing and all sorts of things. Yeah, still don't Casinos. care. Casinos. But I'll definitely do cheating. <laughs> that sounds like a great one. I, I think that's going to be a lot of fun. OK, good. We'll do cheating next week. We'll do cheating. And if you want to hear cheating, or indeed you want to hear any of our previous episodes that we've done, you can. That's right, you can. And it's absolutely free. All you have to do is click that subscribe button on your podcast platform of choice and you will get access to all new episodes in your inbox every single bloody week. And you can go back and check all the old ones as well. Tom, would you like to tell them about our social media? Yes, we have social media. You can join. We do. <laughs> you can join us on Instagram, and our Instagram URL is at that was genius. You can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter username is that underscore was underscore genius. And you can also join us on Facebook. That was genius podcast. Excellent. Great work. Nothing if not inconsistent, Tom. Nothing if not inconsistent. That was beautiful. If you want to review us, please go ahead. We would love to have more reviews. It helps us grow, doesn't it, Sam? What's going on in the background? <laughs> right, yes, Is it does. Is a hovercraft just turned up? Oh, <laughs> yes, yes. Men and balaclavas have just come to take me away. Apparently I'm spouting too much history truth. Either that or my next-door neighbour has just started strimming his hedge. Ooh, uh, matron. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, so I think we should... <laughs> So on that note, I think we should probably wind up this uh, this little podcast. Excellent. So thank you all so much for subscribing, and please do review. And don't forget, if you share our podcast, one of our episodes, on your favourite social media app and tag us in it, you could win a T-shirt. T-shirts are great, by the way. They look really good. And you don't have to review or, or share stuff online. If you're on the tube at the moment, for example, and you enjoyed what you heard, just give the person next to you a bit of a nudge. And when they look around, say, hey... I've got a great little podcast for you to listen to. Sharing is caring. <laughs> and on that note, I think we should probably say goodbye, shouldn't we? We should say goodbye. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. <laughs> so we, can, we can't keep doing two Ronnie's exits. Yeah, we can. <laughs> Bye, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody strimmers. Hello, everyone. This is Sam here. Just a quick shout out to our podcasting friends at Spy Stories. Every Sunday, they put out a biography of some of history's greatest spies. Kind of fitting, considering ZZ and what we've been talking about today. They're a cracking little podcast. Do go and check them out. That's Spy Stories with new episodes every Sunday night on all good podcasting platforms.